This episode will help you prepare for exam questions related to pediatric respiratory dysfunction. The goal of this recording is not to fully describe every concept, instead I hope to explain or at least identify many of the most commonly tested concepts and the most common areas of confusion. Nursing care for respiratory tract infections in children. Most nursing care is pretty similar between adults and even young children when it comes to respiratory tract infections, but there are a few practices that must be slightly adjusted. Many of these adjustments are very small and easy to overlook and forget, but they have large consequences, so they are often tested upon. So when it comes to assessment, for example, we want to be thinking about increased work of breathing. It's something that is important in adults, but it's especially important in children. Um, one thing to note is that increased work of breathing is something that we expect, and when we don't see it in the context of respiratory infection, that's actually very, very concerning. This may take an even more subtle form. Um, for example, if a child does not complain when an IV is being placed, um, that's that's not normal. That's something that's very concerning. Um, we don't like to see children crying, but we especially don't want to see children not crying when they should be crying um, because this is a sign that they have run out of energy and are going into respiratory failure. But as a side note, when it comes to assessing worker breathing, one of the primers is tachypnea. Um, it's very important for young children and infants that we take the respiratory rate for a full 60 seconds. It's also worth noting that hydration is incredibly important, much more so than adults. Um, helping a child get hydration um, for an infant, it might be something like suctioning the nose uh, before feeding because they have all that congestion in their nose. And so um, if they they don't have um, good airflow through their nostrils, they won't be able to um, suck through their mouth. Um, another couple details, your urine output should be at least one milliliter per kilogram per hour in an infant and small child. Because of their increased calorie needs from the increased work of breathing and the increased hydration needs because of their um, the fact that they get dehydrated very quickly, um, very important that we try to increase hydration as much as possible, increase as calories as much as possible, and decrease activity, decrease their usage of calories, decrease their usage of of hydration as much as possible. One important detail that's often overlooked is that for children, especially for infants, um, the pulse oximetry site should be rotated um, every few hours. And this is not something that you have to do for adults generally. For children, if you don't do this, it can cause skin breakdown over time. Nasopharyngitis. Nasopharyngitis is just a fancy word for the common cold. So you know that the common cold is a viral illness, something that's self-limiting, it's just gonna get better on its own over time. As a general rule of thumb, most common home remedies are fine, but there are two very important nursing alerts in the Wong's textbook that talk about vasoconstrictive nose drop and combination cold remedies that um, nurses should be educating parents about, so make sure you're looking at that. One important note about hydration and calories is that they should be encouraged, but not forced. This can be a subtle distinction, but look for that kind of language in the test question itself. On a related note, hydration is much more important than calories. An infant can survive um, for quite a while without any extra food, um, but any child of any age that is not able to maintain hydration status must come to the hospital right away for um, hydration therapy of some kind. Influenza. The assessment and treatment for influenza is very similar to nasopharyngitis, so um, there's not really a whole lot extra to learn. Um, of course, we want to encourage vaccines, and there are a couple antivirals available, um, most popularly Tamiflu. Pharyngitis. 
Laryngitis is a throat infection that is most often viral but often can be caused by strep. The most important thing to do for the acute treatment of pharyngitis is to keep the child hydrated. Uh, cool liquid, ice chips, flavored ice pops, things like that. Assessment is roughly the same as adults. Not very reliable though, just it's an inflammation of the mouth and throat, but there's quite a bit of variation for this assessment. So for pretty much any child where it's even remotely suspected, we're going to do a rapid strep and culture. One minor detail is that it's important to do this rapid strep culture, not so much because the throat infection is so, so dangerous, but more importantly, um, untreated streptococcal infection can lead to things like rheumatic fever and acute glomerulonephritis. An antibiotic that's often given to treat this strep throat infection is penicillin G that's given intramuscular into deep muscle tissue. Very important that this does not get into a vein, can be very, very dangerous in that form. As a side note, it's very natural that when you see airway in a question that you pick it, airway is the priority, is something that's hammered into you over many NCLEX questions. But in this context, airway is usually not a life or death problem with pharyngitis. Very, very rare for that to happen. Um, it's much more likely that the intervention will be something like hydration. That will be um, the most important thing to be mindful of when it comes to pharyngitis. Tonsillitis. Tonsillitis is a viral or bacterial infection of the tonsils. Um, in terms of assessment and interventions, you're going to see that there's going to be a lot of overlap with pharyngitis. Um, there's an inflammation of that mouth and throat area, and the, a lot of the interventions are um, geared towards making sure that they stay hydrated. What's really unique about tonsillitis is the fact that we can do a tonsillectomy. And tonsillectomies are often done outpatient, so a lot of the teaching is going to be geared towards um, teaching parents how to look for the signs of bleeding, um, post-op bleeding. And the problem is that there's a lot of these signs of bleeding can be very subtle, like swallowing, constant swallowing, and tachycardia. Because the surgery happened in the throat, the parents won't be able to visualize the, um, the surgical site directly, but those are a couple of things that they can be looking for. Um, they should avoid citrusy drinks and milk um, because those are bad for the surgical site. Um, anything red colored is bad because when they throw up, we wanna make sure that whether, if it's blood, um, that we will notice the red color. Um, one thing that's very confusing is that when it's um, tonsillitis, you want warm water, you want fluids, and you want a gargle. Um, when after a tonsillectomy, um, a child should be given cold fluids, ice color, and then um, they shouldn't gargle. So make sure you understand that distinction. Mononucleosis. Mononucleosis, or just mono, is a viral infection. That's the most important thing that you have to understand. It's a viral infection, so it's going to get better um, on its own. We want to only give supportive care, prevent complications. The complications are listed in a nursing alert. Um, specifically, their dehydration, difficult breathing, both of those should be fairly um, intuitive given that it's a throat problem. They could get dehydrated because they're not drinking. They have difficulty breathing because of swelling. The one that's unlike the others and um, easier to forget is severe abdominal pain. Otitis media. Acute otitis media is a middle ear infection, not to be confused with otitis externa, which is an outer ear infection, a swimmer's ear, right? So acute otitis media is an infection inside the inside the middle of the ear. These acute otitis media, these ear infections, are not serious in and of themselves, but they may lead to other complications like hearing loss or even mastoiditis. Taking all of the prescribed antibiotics is really, really crucial for that reason. One point of confusion is that when you want to prevent acute otitis media, um, we're going to want to prevent upper respiratory tract infections. That's because the infection goes in through the nasopharynx, through the eustachian tube, into the middle ear. 
right? So it's not, um, the prevention will not be anything like sticking, stopping the child from sticking things in their ears or cleaning out their ears or anything like that from the outside. It's all going to have to do with the nasopharynx. Um, so these will be things like vaccinating, um, social distancing, right? So this should be nothing new to us for those of who, who've, those of us who've uh, gone through the COVID pandemic, right? If we want to prevent upper respiratory tract infections, then we get vaccinated and we distance ourselves from each other. In the context of children, this might look like pulling the child out of daycare or just um, taking, keeping them away from other children who are getting sick. Um, you can also breastfeed. Breastfeeding just improves your immune system overall. So of course, breastfeeding will um, prevent acute otitis media. There are two more ways to prevent um, otitis media that's often overlooked. Um, things like propping the bottle during feeding and exposure to tobacco smoke. Most children will just be treated with a round of antibiotics, but for those who have recurrent infections, you may need to get tympanostomy tubes. These are tubes that allow the contents of the middle ear to drain out into the outer ear. And so you're going to have dressing inside the ear um, immediately after the tympanostomy tubes are placed. Um, one really important detail is that you have to make sure that the dressing is loose enough to allow the drainage to come out, right? If the, drain, if the dressing is really packed in tight, then all that drainage is going to stay inside the middle ear. The whole point of the tube is to let it flow out. Um, we may also want to give topical antibiotics. This is not something that we usually do because the infection is inside the middle of the ear. Um, the topical antibiotics are typically not effective, um, but when tympanostomy tubes are in place, then we will want to give um, topical antibiotics to um, help that site heal, and some of the antibiotics will also go into the middle ear. Epiglottitis. Epiglottitis is a croup syndrome, and it's a bacterial infection of the epiglottis, and it causes swelling in the area, uh, very rapid onset, causes very, very severe respiratory distress. So we're talking about drooling, absence of cough, tripod positioning, things like that. Um, the two top priorities, if you suspect epiglottitis, is one, isolate the patient. Um, take that patient away from other people. And you've probably learned that ABCs are your priorities, A is airway, B is breathing, C is circulation. But actually there's a priority that trumps that, and that's the safety of yourself and those around you, right? Um, and so for that reason, um, actually the first step when you're suspecting epiglottitis is to isolate the patient and make sure that no one else gets infected, that you yourself put on your PPE and you keep them away from other children. Um, another important thing is to not assess the mouth. This is so, so important and it shows up on NCLEX questions all the time. Um, if you suspect epiglottitis, the only time that you'll ever inspect um, this child's mouth is when you have um, everything ready. The Like the anesthesiologist is ready. There's like all the equipment for intubation or for even like a tracheotomy, things like that. Laryngotracheobronchitis. As you think about laryngotracheobronchitis, remember where your larynx, trachea, and bronchi are located. Um, specifically the larynx. Most symptoms will come from the laryngeal inflammation. Um, treatment for this is steroids and nebulized epinephrine. And assessment of this is that very characteristic croupy, croupy cough, um, sometimes described as a barking, as a harsh cough, as like a um, brassy seal barking cough, something like that. Um, when it comes to treatment, Notice that I didn't say albuterol, that's a lower airway problem, right? Um, albuterol does not help our larynx, um, but steroids do, and so that's why they do get steroids. Um, and when it comes to assessment, remember it's not a lower airway problem, so you're not gonna hear things like wheezing or crackles, right? Wheezing is down in the bronchioles when those get narrowed. Um, crackles is when there's fluid down in the alveoli. Um, none of those things are happening because all the swelling is happening in the larynx. So um, laryngotracheobronchitis, you have strider, you have the creepy cough, and you treat it with the steroids and nebulized epinephrine, um, also known as racemic epinephrine. Bronchiolitis. 
Bronchiolitis is primarily caused by respiratory syncytial virus. The most important thing I can say about RSV bronchiolitis is that it will definitely show up on the exam. It will show up on any pediatric exam that you'll see um, that covers the respiratory system. It is the number one diagnosis for children who are hospitalized under the age of one. It's just this one single type of infection. So uh, very, very important in pediatrics. This, this particular section of the book is really worth reading. Um, the therapeutic management and the nursing care management, pretty much every word in that is worth reading. You don't have to memorize every single number um, but when it comes to other parts of the book you might be skimming that might be fine um, but for this particular section make sure that you're understanding the care for the most part there's going to be um, it's going to follow the things that you're used to nasal cannula oxygen maybe even intubating things like that um, but there are going to be a couple things that we don't do. Um, we don't use chest physiotherapy. It just hasn't been shown to be useful. Um, we don't give antivirals. There isn't really one that's consistently effective. The only one that we sometimes use is rabavirin, but it's not um, routinely used either. Um, there's no vaccine, but there is a prophylactic medication, a monoclonal antibody called palivizumab. Um, palivizumab is given monthly for the first RSV season for high-risk infants. Pneumonia. The assessment and treatment of pneumonia is pretty similar for adults and children. Uh, one specific complication of pneumonia that you may have difficulty with is pneumothorax. Uh, most of the clinical manifestations of pneumothorax actually overlap with those of um, pneumonia itself and really just with any kind of respiratory problem. Um, but a couple things that really stand out about um, a pneumothorax is the hypotension and the weak pulses that come about. For a child with a one-sided pneumonia, um, the child should be positioned so that the good lung is up and the bad lung is down, and this is so that the bad lung can be splinted against the bed to make it less painful when they cough. Pertussis. Pertussis is a bacterial infection that causes a cough with a characteristic whooping sound in between the coughing episodes. Children are routinely vaccinated for this as part of the DTAP or as part of the Tdap. Um, they should be considered infectious until after five days of antibiotics. This is a little unusual that they need a full five days of antibiotics um, before they're allowed to um, go out and not be considered infectious anymore. Um, we may also need to do prophylactic treatment of close contacts. So for those reasons, it's a little unique, um, but in a lot of ways when it comes to assessments, um, it, a lot of the assessment is going to be pretty similar to other types of respiratory distress, except for of course that characteristic whooping sound and for treatment it's bacterial so we're going to give it antibiotics so that's rather predictable tuberculosis just a couple details i'll point out is that um, children under 10 are not contagious um, they only require standard precautions this has to do with the anatomy of the child um, other than that except for that situation uh, it's very important that we put these children under airborne precautions foreign body aspiration Prevention of foreign body aspiration includes um, knowing the kind of things that are most likely offenders. So when it comes to foods, um, it could be hot dogs, hard candy. And when it comes to toys, it can be anything like a balloon, anything that has small pieces that can be broken off, anything like that. Um, a chest x-ray is always done when foreign body aspiration is suspected, but a chest x-ray is not always definitive, right? There are a lot of different things that children can aspirate on, like hot dogs. It's not really gonna show up on the chest x-ray, so it's very important to understand that. Um, chest x-ray part of the diagnosis, but it's not definitive every single time. Um, we're also going to want to do assessments as well. Um, it might be wheezing or diminished breath sounds around where that, and distal too, around where that foreign body um, eventually lodged itself inside the lungs. 
One additional point is that back blows and chest thrusts are something that you learn to do to children who are actively choking. And that, those are the keywords, actively choking. Um, you wouldn't do a CPR on someone after they've recovered from um, their cardiac arrest. And for that same reason, you wouldn't do um, back blows and chest thrusts on someone who's not actively choking. So if they were choking a moment ago, but now they seem fine, um, don't pick up that child and start doing back blows and chest thrusts. That is not appropriate. Smoke inhalation injury. A couple of interesting details about smoke inhalation injury are that one, um, high O2 saturation reading may be misleading. Um, so it's very, very confusing when you see a, a person who is cyanotic and it looks like they are in severe respiratory distress and they have a high O2 saturation. Um, carbon monoxide, when they bind to hemoglobin, also triggers the O2 sat probe. And so what that O2 sat probe is seeing is actually carbon monoxide, but it can't really tell the difference so that um, so it shows a high oxygen saturation reading. So um, regardless of what the O2 set shows, if they look at you in respiratory distress and they've um, experienced smoke inhalation, then we're going to put 100% oxygen on them as quickly as possible. Asthma. When it comes to asthma, um, pulmonary function tests and peak expiratory flow meter are often confused with one another. Um, they're both tests that um, require this child to be um, cooperative and generally done at around six years of age or so. Um, but they're very different in terms of what they do. Um, pulmonary function tests are done at diagnosis in every couple of years to determine the severity of one child's asthma. A peak flow meter, on the other hand, is done every time the child suspects an asthma attack, and it really compares that child against that same child at another time at baseline to determine the severity of that acute exacerbation. So to summarize, PFTs are done to determine the severity of an, a, one child's asthma. A peak flow meter reading is done to determine the severity of one specific acute exacerbation episode at that particular moment of time. From a home teaching standpoint, it's very important to teach parents how to use the asthma action plan along with the peak flow meter and also how to use the MDI. As a quick recap, um, you shake it first, you attach the spacer, you seal your lips around it, um, the child breathes out, they squeeze, then they breathe in slowly, and then they hold for five to 10 seconds, and then they slowly breathe out. Um, they wait one minute and then do their next puff if needed. Um, so make sure you understand that basic um, flow. Watch out for test questions that instruct parents to do things like exclude a child from all physical activity. You can see how this makes sense from a very disease-oriented perspective, right? If you're only looking at the disease, then you can see, okay, if this child doesn't exercise, they'll probably have less asthma attacks. But when you look at it from a holistic perspective, um, restricting a child from all physical activity is really inappropriate, right? It's not best for their um, development in any way. Cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis is an autosomal recessive genetic disorder. Um, it's a systemic disorder. It just happens all over your, things happen all over your body, but um, the respiratory problems are the most severe, which is why it shows up in the respiratory chapter. That said, the first manifestations for an infant are actually related to the GI system. Uh, specifically, the most classic one is a meconium ileus. The first thing that is often noticed for these infants is that um, the infant does not, a newborn does not pass meconium within the first 24 to 48 hours. Um, at that point, we might want to do a sweat chloride test to try to confirm um, a, a diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. By the way, those GI symptoms stick around, right? Those um, They don't get replaced by the respiratory problems. The res respiratory problems eventually get added on top of the GI problems. So they are constipated as a newborn. They're constipated out for the rest of their lives. Um, they have other GI problems as well, and we'll talk about that. But the most important thing is understanding airway clearance therapy. Um, this is the way that children with cystic fibrosis basically stay alive. They 
constantly clearing out all this junk that's building up in their mucus. Um, they can do that with percussion. They can do that with chest compression machines, flutter mucus clearance devices. These are all physical ways to just um, break up those secretions. There's a couple other medications they can use as well. Um, albuterol will not be particularly surprising to you, but there's also this medication called Dorian's Alpha that helps with thin secretions. Very, very important to understand. Um, they also take prophylactic antibiotics to try to um, prevent um, respiratory infections, which is often the reason why these children eventually die. From a gastrointestinal standpoint, um, children with cystic fibrosis must take pancreatic enzymes at the start of every single meal or a snack. And so um, you will see that there's some slight variation. Um, a test question might say slightly before they start eating or when they start eating. Um, that distinction isn't really important. Um, just sometime at around the time of each meal, start time of each meal or snack, um, they should take these pancreatic enzymes. These enzymes go by the name of pancrelipase, also creon. Um, also, they should take vitamins A, D, E, and K. Um, they have a hard time digesting their fats, and so we need to give them uh, supplements of their fat-soluble vitamins. So that's all I have to say. Thanks so much for listening.